Today, let's turn our attention to why we're here, the eighth chapter of the book of Joshua. We've been in this book now for several weeks, and today we find ourselves at an unusual juncture in the book. Beginning in verse 30 of chapter 8, we find ourselves in a spot you might not expect. Now, let me give you a little running start before we read. The book of Joshua portrays, in a very real sense, our lives. You're going to see, in fact, we have seen, if you've been in this study, you will have noticed that Israel was living in victory. They had crossed the Jordan. They had defeated Jericho. Life was good. God was on his throne and all was well in the promised land until sin entered the camp. Israel fell into sin so similar to you and I. We're riding high on victory and then we fall flat on our face in sin. Israel repents. In dust and ashes, they come before their God, they confess their sin, and as you might expect, you who know the Bible well, how does God respond to this sin? He responds with great grace, which is what we see in the 8th chapter of the book of Joshua. But that was last week. And after the 29th verse where we see Israel enjoy the grace of God. They defeat Ai despite the sin that had been brought in the camp. What would you expect to come next? As you read the book of Joshua, you may be so inclined to think, okay, after God gives us grace, I expect Israel to do what I do and what you probably do. And that's presume upon the riches of His grace. We're so inclined to receive God's grace and then take it for granted. And I want you to notice the stark turn beginning in verse 30. Their response to grace is unexpected and instructive for us. If you found it, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word. Joshua 8, beginning in verse 30. I'll read down through verse 35. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. And he did so on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law of Moses. An altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And so they offered on this altar burnt offerings to the Lord, And they sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, along with their elders and officers and their judges, they stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who had carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of this group was in front of Mount Gerizim, and the other half was in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first. And they did all this to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, both the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. And he did this in front of the women, the little ones, and the sojourners 
who lived amongst them. Would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and that you would take your word and seal it to our hearts. It's humbling, Lord, to recognize what freedom we have to receive this word. Just as news is spreading all weekend that our fellow followers of you who live in Afghanistan are staring persecution in the face. And so we, your people, plead on their behalf. And in so doing, we ask that you would sober us this day by the wonder, the sheer wonder, that we can freely hear and receive your word. Be honored now as we worship in it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If I were to come down the aisle right before the service and I were to stop you in your seat and say, what's your favorite hymn? And you didn't have much time to think about it. What would you say? If I were to just catch you, my guess is that the vast majority in this room would probably, if you didn't have much time to think about it, you'd probably just off the cuff say, amazing grace. How many of you were thinking, Amazing Grace? It's so common. It's the most recognizable hymn in the English language. A scholar who wrote the biography on John Newton, who penned that hymn so many years ago, he estimates that this hymn is sung some 10 million times annually. It's recorded in at least 11,000 albums. It's been sung by platinum artists, by presidents. It's been performed on Broadway. It tops every list of the most famous, most loved, most revered hymns. And I wonder why. I I mean, I'm guessing it's because there's something about that song, Amazing Grace, that resonates with all of us, doesn't it? You just hear those words and you can feel the zeal, the fervor of John Newton who wrote that hymn to illustrate a New Year's Day sermon in 1773. You see, John Newton, he was a British slave trader who was confronted with the call of Christ, who turned from his sins, became an abolitionist, which is a natural response to hearing the gospel, and he beheld the glory of the good news of Jesus, and he responded as you and I ought. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I wonder how many in this room would say grace is still amazing to you. Does grace still amaze you? Have you forgotten that it's the most incredible word in all the Bible? Grace is full. There's nothing you can do to add to it. It's unmerited favor. Grace is free. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It is freely given. Thanks be to God, grace is not just full and free, it is final. There is nothing you can do to lose it. Grace is the most incredible word in the Bible. And yet, so many of us, and I stand with you on this, so many of us 
find ourselves losing that sweet, sweet sound. We hear this most incredible word and we can't help but pervert it or presume upon it for this incredible word is also an incomprehensible one. It's incomprehensible because it goes against everything that we naturally believe. If grace really is free, then our flesh says it must then be cheap. Sin must really not be that costly, not that big of a deal if grace really is that free. Because what sane God would just freely lavish his grace upon us if indeed sin is a big deal? We are inclined to think, well, you know, if grace really is full, it it must be small then. It must not be that big of a deal. In other words, I must be somehow, some way, in some capacity worthy of this grace. Otherwise, why would God give full grace to a wicked rebel wretch, as John Newton described. Surely this is not what God means by His grace. If grace really is final, then it must really be inconsequential. It it must be one of those things that you get and it doesn't really matter how it affects you. How many of you look in the mirror of Romans 6 and say, I see myself? Where in Romans 6, Paul inveys against the one who says, why don't we just keep on sinning so that grace may abound? You know, if God's a God of grace, if God forgives, then it doesn't matter who I sleep with. If God forgives, it doesn't matter what I drink. If God forgives, it doesn't really matter what I do. And Paul's inveigh is clear and it is tough. May genoito, may it never be, God forbid... Paul says, For grace may be free, but it is not cheap. Grace may be full, but it is not small. Grace may be final, but my friends, it is not inconsequential. So today, I want you to see with me, if you find yourself this moment wandering from grace, you just find yourself not seeing it as amazing, If you hear the word grace in so many sermons and it goes in one ear and out the other, I plead that you give yourself to the 8th chapter of the book of Joshua and the 30 through 35th verses. For in these few verses, I want you to see and feel with me that this text demonstrates for us a recognizable pattern in our lives. This text is going to show you and I how to respond to God's grace. This text is going to show you and I how to live when we find ourselves mirroring Israel, which is every day, my friends, for you and I, just like Israel, often live and glide in the victory of God until we fall flat on our face into sin and we find ourselves like Achan, old mistaken Achan. We find ourselves, oh God, forgive me for what I've done. And by His grace, He comes and He forgives us of our sin. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness as He promises in 1 John. And then what? Then what? Now what? How are we supposed to live in grace? What are we supposed to do with this? How do you live under the grace of God? 
I want you to feel with me as we see in this text. My friends, mark this down. May it be inscribed on your heart. Grace demands a response. I would qualify that to say, grace demands a right response. And I want you to see the response demonstrated in verses 30 through 35. The right response to grace. Now, I gave you a little foretaste of this before I read. Verse 29 of the book of, of the 8th chapter of the book of Joshua ends with the destruction of Ai. It actually ends with the killing of the king of Ai. Now, after Israel has just had this great victory, after stumbling, they all of a sudden have this victory. What would you expect next from a warring nation? Wouldn't you expect them to keep going past Ai? I mean, don't stop. Momentum's up behind you. You have just defeated Ai. It's time to charge deeper into the land. You keep on going. Don't you expect something like 9-1 to come next, where you start seeing Israel encounter all the kings of the land? Wouldn't you expect this? And yet what we find in verse 30 is abrupt. It's a detour. It's not what we would expect. And the reason we don't expect it is because we are putting ourselves in Israel's shoes and we recognize that when we receive God's grace, what is our fleshly tendency? Are you anything like me where when you receive God's grace, your fleshly impulse is just to assume it and say, well, God is good, He's forgiving, He'll forgive me tomorrow, so you know what, I'm just going to keep doing my thing. I'm just going to keep moving. Do you ever find yourself stopping after receiving the grace of God, falling on your face and worshiping? You probably don't. Because if not, you'd be doing it every day. You find yourself, as I find myself so often, presuming upon the riches of His grace. And this is why I want you to look at this text with me. For what happens, beginning in verse 30, is stunning, striking, and it should grab us. For what Israel does is instead of continuing with their momentum, living under the banner of God's grace, they stop and they respond in three noted ways. Mark these three ways down. Three right responses to God's grace. Three ways we ought to respond to the grace of God in our lives. Mark this down. Firstly, I want you to see we must obey His Word. Look with me, if you will, at verses 30 and 31. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord. He did so on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it's written in the book of the Law of Moses. There was a command... Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, many, many years before, Moses had commanded the people of Israel, when you cross that Jordan River, when you enter the promised land, I want you to go to this spot in the land, this spot called Mount Ebal. I want you to go to this spot in the land, which is kind of central northern Israel. It's between Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. There were two mountains, a northern mountain named Ebal, a southern mountain named Gerizim. They are both uh, roughly a thousand feet high. They would look just like uh, Crowder's Mountain. If you're familiar with Crowder's Mountain here in the Charlotte region, it would look similar to that, only a little bit more rounded, about the same height. And in between these two mountains was a 500-foot-wide valley. And in this valley was a significant city. If you read the Bible, you've heard it a time or two. The town of Shechem. 
And this is where God told them to go. He made a command to go. And Israel obeyed this command. Now, some of you are already got little warning flags going up in your mind. And you're thinking, Kyler, the subject of this sermon is grace. God's grace is free, full, final, and you have now imported obedience. That smells a lot like works to me. Are you sure that the right response to God's grace is obeying His Word? Are you sure that you are not proclaiming works righteousness? This is a separate sermon, but let me just give this brief caveat so that you don't get led astray. Obedience is the fruit of grace. It is not the root. God does not give you grace because you obey. He gives you grace and then you naturally respond by obeying. This is the difference between the fruit and the root. I want you to see the fruit of God's people receiving the grace of God. They come and they obey. Two things I want you to notice about their obedience to God's Word. First first off, it was done immediately. Notice it says, at that time. Immediately after defeating Ai, they beeline their way to this little valley, which was way out of the way, by the way. We're going to get to that uh, feature in a moment. They make their way to this valley instead of continuing on. The principle we ought to see underneath this is delayed obedience is disobedience. You parents know this well. Are your children obeying when they disobey ten times and on the eleventh time after you've pled ten times, they finally do it? Would you call that obedience? If you do, please hear me. As one who has worked with so many children, that is not obedience. You must help your children see that delayed obedience is indeed disobedience. This is echoed by James, the brother of Jesus, who says in James 4 and verse 17, If anyone knows the right thing to do, but fails to do it, for him it is sin. Israel had been commanded by God himself to go to this mountain, and they were making their way immediately. They obeyed right away. They were recipients of God's grace, and off they went. It was an immediate immediate obedience. I want you to see, in addition to that, it wasn't just done immediately. It really was done inconveniently. For notice, Mount Ebal is not the way they would have gone. I don't have a map. You'll want to look this up on your own. But if you were to look at a map of Israel, going from the Jordan to Jericho to Ai, the next natural spot on the map in your conquest of Israel is not the Valley of Shechem at the base of Mount Ebal. That is a detour, indeed a 20-mile detour, which doesn't sound like much to you unless you were walking with a couple million people. That, my friends, is quite the detour. They made their way up and they came to this valley of Shechem, which was a significant area. Shechem was the place Abraham first stopped when he came into the promised land. Shechem was the place that uh, Jacob dug his well. 
And you know Jacob's well, for that town, Shechem, is the very place where Jesus came through the region of Samaria, stopped in the city of Shechem, and he met the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. This is a city that has great import throughout the Bible. And in this city, I want you to see, them making their way to Shechem was an inconvenient path. Them making their way to Shechem was the ultimate act of obedience. I want you to hear this. The birthmark of obedience is inconvenience. For example, how many of you parents in this room yet again have said, Son, I am so thankful you obeyed me by eating your dessert. But if you were like me last night at my home, we spent half of our meal waging war over eating Vegetables at the meal. My girl takes after me. You see, obedience, when you want to do it already, is not obedience. That's just doing what you want. It just so happens to coincide with what God wants. Obedience in the final analysis is born when it's inconvenient and you are in that moment trusting God, this is not what I would do. God, this is not my will, but not my will, oh God, but yours be done. I am trusting you despite my limited, finite, but accurate opinion on things. I am trusting you, O God, that your ways are not my ways. They are higher than my ways. I am obeying you. It is done immediately and it is done inconveniently. And so, my friends, hear this. The call of Christ to you this day, you who have tasted and seen the grace of God, hear his plea to you this day. Obey his word. And do so right away and do so without delay. Notice the inconvenience of this obedience. Therein lies the mark of true obedience. That's number one, my friends. Obey His Word. May I draw your attention now to a second element of truth we see in this text. The second way we ought to respond to the grace of God. Secondly, we ought to not just obey His Word. We should trust His work. For notice what they do next. They've obeyed Him. They have made their way on this detour north to the valley of Shechem at the mountains of Ebal and Gerizim. And there they do something that you see all throughout the Old Testament. Let's read verse 31. It says, They built an altar of uncut stones upon which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered on this altar burnt offerings and they also offered peace offerings. Let's talk about this altar. It's the first time you see the word altar in the book of Joshua, but it's not the first time you see it in the Bible. The word altar is found some 400 times throughout the Bible. It's implied as early as the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, where do you recall Cain and Abel coming before God? And what did Cain bring before the Lord? The work of his hands, the fruit of his labor. He brought great produce. He brought something that was branded Cain. But what did Abel bring before the Lord? As a child, I always thought this must mean that meat is preferable to vegetables because God wanted the sacrifice. And though while I am still somewhat inclined towards that, please hear me that what Abel did in that moment was not bring the work of his hands. 
When, when Abel brought the sacrifice before God, Abel was in essence saying, God, there is nothing I can bring before you that could possibly atone for my sins. Nothing. My hands are empty. I could bring you my house. I could bring you my child. I have nothing to offer. I am trusting this sacrifice of an animal, knowing that an animal had been slain by God himself to cover the sins of Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. He recognized the need for blood atonement, for a sacrifice. So we see it as early as Cain and Abel. We see it in Abraham, who uh, along with Isaac and Jacob, all made, as well as Noah, I skipped Noah, they all did sacrifices on altars. We see it first commanded by Moses himself in Exodus 20, and we see it reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy, where they are, they are commanded to make these sacrifices on altars to atone for their sin. I want you to notice where the sacrifice takes place. It's not immediately apparent in this text, but if you were to go read Deuteronomy 27, which I told you is the text behind Joshua 8, 30-35, you will notice in Deuteronomy 27 that Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are significant. Mount Gerizim is a beautiful, verdant, green hill. It's called the Mount of Blessing. Mount Ebal is a bald, rugged hill. It is called the Mount of Cursing. Now, if you were to go worship, would you want to worship on the Mount of Blessing? with green verdant pastures? Or would you want to worship on the bald, ugly, evil Mount of Cursing, Mount Ebal? The altar, the sacrifice, is placed on Ebal. Why would God direct them to worship on the Mount of Cursing? It's bad news! Wouldn't you want the good news of blessing in Gerizim? And it's because as Israel stood in the valley of decision with Ebal looming and Gerizim looming and they looked to the Mount of Blessing and they wanted, they wanted, oh, they wanted to be able to summit it. They wanted to say, God, I have been obedient enough to ascend this hill. Ebal loomed. And they knew the disobedience of their hands. They knew their sin. They knew that Ebal was their home. They knew the only mount they had a ticket to enter was Ebal itself. They knew curse was upon them. They knew that they were dead in their sins. Which is why the altar is erected on Ebal. For in the face of curse of sin and death, they found an altar, a place of forgiveness, a place of sacrifice. And so they came and they received the grace found in the sacrifice of an animal. They came to the Mount of Curse and received grace. Take a step back with me this side of Calvary and recognize, my friends, that sin brings a curse that only grace can break. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, a shadow of the altar on the Mount of Curse. You see, in truth, Mount Gerizim and all of its blessings, it's bad news if you don't have grace because none of us are obedient enough to receive it. All of us are citizens of Ebal, 
Which is why we gather around the altar, so to speak, the cross of Jesus and glory in the atonement for our sins. Notice with me three shadows of Christ seen in this verse alone. Just the latter half of verse 31, three ways we must trust His work. Firstly, I want you to notice we must trust His work only, which we see shadowed in that phrase, an altar of uncut stones. He goes on to say, it's an altar upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. This was an altar that had no carvings, no fingerprints of man, no work of humankind on it. This was an altar of God-made stones cobbled together. It was a shadow of Christ's exclusivity, which means He alone can take away your sins. There is nothing, Francis Schaeffer says, there was no stitch of humanism in this religious act. Nothing. We will stand before God one day with nothing to offer before Him. Our only plea will be Jesus Himself who did it all for us. I want you to see that the story of atonement really is the story of trusting God's work alone. This is what Abel did, as I already told you. This is what Abraham did when it says he believed God. He just trusted God and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is what the Samaritans did not do. In fact, to this very day, the Samaritans, most Samaritans in this world, which by the way, Samaritans, they were the leftover people after uh, the Babylonians and Assyrians had come in and wiped out the northern and southern tribes of Israel. There were some leftovers, people left in the land. They intermarried and they became the Samaritans. They kind of created their own little religion and they worshiped not on Mount Ebal. What do you think they worshiped? To this very day, the Samaritans worship and have an altar on Mount uh, Gerizim where they believe that a mixture of works and grace is what you need. The Samaritans missed it. That's why when Jesus is at the well with that woman, she says, our fathers worship on this mountain. She's talking about Mount Gerizim. She's standing right under it. And Jesus doesn't point to Mount Ebal. Do you know where he points? He points to Jerusalem. And he says, this is where we worship because he knew that Calvary was coming and the shadow on Ebal would become in full on Mount Calvary where Jesus would die for our sins. I want you to see, my friends, that this inclination to Gerizim is what the Pharisees did. They all tried to earn it themselves. It's what essentially every world religion, whether you call Judaism, uh, Islam, even official teaching and doctrine of Roman Catholicism, all have the leaven of Gerizim. They all add something. They all take out their chisel and try to carve something into that stone. And Jesus' plea to you this day is to see, firstly, you must trust His work only. Only. Are you trusting that He alone is the way, the truth, and the life? That no man can come to the Father but through Him. Trust His work only. In addition, I want you to notice that we must trust His work fully. Would you notice in verse 31 with the description of the burnt offerings? Those burnt offerings were 
mandated in Leviticus 1, they were the chief, significant, most costly offering where you would bring the whole animal and it would be a male without blemish and that animal would be sacrificed in your place, shadowing, foreshadowing the atonement we would receive through Jesus, the substitutionary atonement we receive through Jesus, where Jesus would be the perfect Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. He would die once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And so I wonder, are you trusting His work fully? Have you thrown yourself, surrendered yourself upon His work and His work alone? Trust Him only, trust His work fully. And there's one third and final element to this trust We should trust Him gladly for the last offering we see in this text is what's called the peace offering or some call it the free will offering. This is an offering that involved offering some of the animal and then enjoying a meal together in thanksgiving. It was a way to not just make the religious act of sacrifice but to enjoy together God and His grace. It was similar to to our Lord's Supper meal we enjoy together. In fact, how many of you have ever heard before in some churches the communion or Lord's Supper meal is called the Eucharist? Well, that Eucharist word comes from Eucharisto, which means to thank. For, at its heart, this communion meal is a time for us to rejoice, to gladly trust, to thank God for His grace. And so I wonder, are you gladly trusting His work? Or is this a duty-bound sort of, I know this is the only way. And so, with chains around my ankles, I am going to walk the rest of this life to glory. There is great gladness at your disposal. Trust His work only fully and gladly. That's the second thing. And now let me show you one third and final response to the grace of God that I want to lay upon your heart. Third and finally, would you look with me that we must worship His way. For the rest of this text in verses 32 and following, the rest of this text is in essence a description of a service of worship. And if you read it with me, you'll have noticed there's one word that predominates. Again and again, you're going to notice the word. The Word. The Word is at the center. Old Testament worship was centered on God's Word. So too New Testament worship and we today. This is why the pulpit is central and not to the side as so many churches have it. We place the pulpit central not for an ego trip. It's here because the Word is the main reason we are gathered. Why is our service more preaching than singing? It's not because singing isn't worthy. It's because the Word is central. The Word is why we gathered. It is the authority of this service. It is the authority of this church. And I want you to notice, as we conclude our time this day, four uh, little impressions, four different ways we ought to worship His way, as indicated in verses 32 and following. Four ways Israel worshipped that we ought to take as instructive. First off, they worshipped His way and they did so submissively. For notice in verse 32, it says, In the presence of the people of Israel, Joshua wrote 
on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. He inscribed the law, probably the Ten Commandments. He probably did not write all of the uh, Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He may have written good chunks of the book of Deuteronomy. We just don't know. But he wrote the Bible, portions of it, on these stones that were erected as a monument for God's people. This is not the first time we've seen a monument of stones. In the fourth chapter of Joshua, there was a monument uh, placed after they crossed the Jordan River. You remember those 12 stones? Declaring definitively that God is able to free you and bring you to the land. Then they set up another monument of stones after they killed Achan. They put the stones over Achan, declaring that God is just. Then they put another monument of stones up after they defeated Ai, declaring that God is faithful. That was in verse 29 of this chapter. And now we see yet again another monument of stones, this time with the word inscribed on it. They probably put like a calcium plaster over the stones and then wrote on that calcium, which there's evidence of that to this day, by the way, over on Mount Ebal, very interestingly. This was a monument that said God is holy. For God has said time and time again, as he does in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, my friends, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. His call to us this day is that we worship him with a heart of submission. That we look at this monument of his word. And by the way, we don't have to do that because we all have access to it. This is the monument to God's word as it stands before you this day. Submit yourselves to it. Sit under it. Don't listen to a word I, Clint, or any man says if it does not proceed from this book. This is the authority. This is what we must submit to. We worship Him submissively. Moreover, we worship Him responsively. Now, you didn't see this because, again, I, I, I feel like I should have preached Deuteronomy 27. If you go back to Deuteronomy 27, you'll notice there when they stand across from one another on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim looking at each other, the Bible starts to be read. Joshua starts to read the book. And what do they do? Do they sit there like so many of us do and with their hands crossed and just listening? If you go read Deuteronomy 27, they cry out with responsive praise. They affirm, they amen. They continuously come together and they affirm, they respond to the word proclaimed. And this is a call to each of us that worship is not a passive act. I've said it so many times from this platform, hear it yet again. You must come, my friends, and prepare your heart to worship. You must come and do what it takes to hear and receive with meekness, as James says, the implanted word. For some of you, that might mean praying before you come to the service. That is a really good idea for all of us. For some of you, it may be as simple as get caffeine after that long night with the infant so that you can listen. For some of you, indeed, I think for probably most of us in this room, it's going to mean you take notes or you process however God has wired you to process. You don't just listen like it's a spectator sport. You figure out how to get the word into you. One simple way to do this, one way I do often from the front row here, is that as the word is proclaimed, I pray. 
I hear it and I pray, usually for me because I'm the most wicked person I know, and I just keep pleading that God would chisel away at my heart. We must worship not just submissively, we must worship responsively. Let's add another layer to this. We also ought to worship receptively. Very similar to responsive, but notice the difference in verse 34. It says, afterward, he read all the words of the law, both the blessing and the curse. How many of you love it when the pastor preaches a sermon on grace and you don't love it when the pastor preaches a sermon on sin? How many of you love it when the sermon is wonderful and life-giving and encouraging and you just say, my church is so encouraging? And then you find yourself getting all out of shape when the sermon is heavy. It's tough. It's convicting. You feel like your toes have been stepped on. We must submit ourselves to all of the word, both the blessings and the curses. We must receive it receptively. We must say, God, I humbly receive your word to be that which I need. Like tough medicine to swallow, I am trusting that it is for my good and your glory. Oh God, may we worship you your way, submissively. May we worship you responsively, receptively. And just lastly, as a little final period to this sermon, You probably should notice in verse 35 that we should take note that worshiping His way is worshiping corporately. For notice who's here. Is it the most intelligent amongst them? Is it the oldest and wisest and kindest? Is it the ones who can sit still? It says the little ones. Then the sojourners. Those are the people that aren't even part of Israel. They were just coming along with the group. Everybody gathered around the word. And it is a good call to us in the age of COVID that though there may be circumstances that prevent you from a season for gathering, Christianity is meant to be lived in community. We must gather weekly around the word together. We must come together in corporate worship and it should be marked with an intergenerational and international feel, which is why we pray all the more that God will fill this room with every tribe, tongue, and nation and every age. If you have a five-year-old in this room, praise God. If your five-year-old makes some noise in this room, praise God. We are glad to have all ages together gathering corporately around God's Word. But if you really need some child care, we do have worship care. (laughs) My friends, my friends, God has been gracious to us. He's been gracious to you. This grace demands a response. We ought to respond with obedience to His Word. We ought to respond with trusting His work only, fully, gladly. And we ought to worship Him His way, submissively, responsively, receptively, corporately. Praise God for His grace. But for you in this room who know that you have joined the great congregation in the Valley of Decision, You are standing, as it were, in Shechem, and you are looking at Mount Gerizim, and it looks really nice. And you're like, Kyler, I want that. I want to go up that peak. It looks nice, great, comfortable, desirable. I think I can do it. I have been a decent, good, respectable person. My plea to you is to see that Ebal looms, that the curse of sin is real, and that you, like me, stand justly condemned under the weight of sin. And this need not be hopeless bad news. 
For take my hand and let's ascend Mount Ebal together. For there you will find an altar. There is slain a lamb. Jesus Christ Himself who died on Calvary's cross. He is the blood atonement you need. He is the one who will forgive you of your sins. He is the one who will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You must simply come as Israel of old came. Come to the cross and receive the grace of Jesus. And when you do, you will join the chorus of this congregation who together will cry out, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once, I was lost. I was trying to go up Gerizim, but I have been found. I was blind, but now I see. Would you join me as we pray to that end? Oh, I pray that the Spirit would move in this room so that you would taste and see the amazing grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Don't fear Mount Ebal. The Mount of Curse is a Mount of Blessing. Go to this Mount, confess your sins before Him, and receive the grace found in Jesus, shadowed by the altar of uncut stones. God, do this, I pray, for Jesus' sake and for the good of these dear people I love. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet. As we stand and as we sing, we ought to all respond to the grace of God together. Let us cry in unison together.